This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Sustainability, the Business Opportunity of the 21st Century. We are at a moment of enormous global change and even greater business opportunity. Climate change is the single biggest commercial opportunity of our time, and this podcast sustainability guru Richard Blundell and myself explore the opportunities open to businesses which embrace sustainability from the business perspective. Find out why sustainability is the greatest business opportunity of the 21st century. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox back again with Richard Blundell for another episode and today we're going to take up one of the topics that I think is the most significant for every compliance practitioner, every sustainability professional, and a wide swath of others right now and going forward. And that's the rebuild, reconstruction of Ukraine after the war ends. We're going to, I've talked about this from the compliance perspective, but today we're going to focus on the sustainability perspective because this may present as big an opportunity as I see in the construction realm. I think the rebuild of Ukraine will be the biggest construction project the world's seen since the rebuild of Europe after World War II. And Richard has some great ideas about how we can not simply rebuild, but reimagine and maybe use it as a leadership and testing ground. So Richard, I'm not quite sure where we should start, but maybe we can start with what you've identified as perhaps some of the problems that the old Ukraine, if I can use that, had in terms of sustainability and what the opportunities are or will be after the war ends. Yeah, great question, Tom. Great to be back. Uh, this is a really interesting topic. And I, as just at the outset, I think you're right. There's a real opportunity here for the Ukraine to actually create global leadership around green reconstruction of cities and to be a leader in actually building green urban centers. Right? And, but if we go back to what the Ukraine was before the war, there's a lot of issues here around just general health-related issues around their energy mix. The Ukraine has the worst air quality in Europe, and it's not marginally worse. It's much worse. Like by So if you look at air indices, air quality indices, the Ukraine is hundreds of times worse than uh, most European countries. A lot of that has to do with the old Soviet era factories. They're a fairly large manufacturer of industrial equipment. In fact, quite a bit of that is transportation related. Some of it's chemical related as well. They rely very heavily on fossil fuels. They're a very large producer of coal. They're the most mined country in Europe. So terrible air quality. Most mine country, they mine a lot of coal. They have their energy infrastructure now, or before the war, sorry, is 28% coal, 28% natural gas, 14% oil. And so that's about 70%. And then 23% nuclear. And the remaining uh, 6% or roughly just over 6% was, was hydro and renewables. So they also mine a lot of, of iron ore for the production of steel, which is not going to be a profitable business for the next decade at least. So that infrastructure and the built and sorry, the buildings are very poorly constructed. There's very little insulation. 
So a lot of the heat that's produced to heat those buildings just basically evaporates through the walls. So it was an enormously inefficient system in terms of buildings, in terms of industry, in terms of energy mix. And and so I there's a little bit, I hate to say this, but there's a bit of a silver lining here because all of the coal-fired power plants are destroyed or have been destroyed. A lot of the coal mines themselves have been rendered inoperable because of the war. A lot of them have been occupied by the Russians. And there's an opportunity for them to actually reimagine their energy mix, to reimagine their how they build back, how they're building infrastructure, to reimagine the integration of energy transportation and buildings, which are the largest emitting sectors on every economy. But it's very interesting to to because they could basically bypass all of the technologies of the of the past century and really look at the 21st uh, century as an opportunity for them to build back and to be a leader in this area. So I think there's some really exciting opportunities here. Why don't we start with the energy? How can the current energy infrastructure, the extent it still exists, be utilized as a starting point to build out some of the things you've talked about in prior episodes? And why do you see this as such a great opportunity to integrate current energy companies with a forward thinking or future view, Richard? Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. I think there's a couple of things here. One is obviously the opportunity is to build a much more decentralized system, which is going to be much more resilient over the long run. And so decentralization or distributed energy systems that can be used both for fixed built form, sorry, for transportation and for other aspects of the economy are, again, because they're distributed, they are more resilient. They also lend themselves to becoming potentially more transactive as a grid. So that's where we're going in the West, is we're going from being a one-way communication with with energy generation and distribution to being a two-way sort of communication where customers become actually uh, partly also generators and distributors of energy. This can only be done with renewables. They lend themselves extremely well to a distributed system. So it allows for this distributed system to be more available, let's say, to be more structured towards the the trends in in the energy industry as a whole and to be much more transactive, which is the future of, of of, of energy. I think the other thing is that the if you look at what's going on right now, all of the sort of wind farms, so 90% of the wind has actually been built during the war. Solar is now being used on like balconies of apartment buildings. You now see it on rooftops. So you're starting to see this more distributed system and much more resilient system. And it is also, the resilience is also important because as we move closer and closer to what is likely to be a two degrees or two to three degree world where we're going to have some fairly catastrophic weather and over the next few decades, this kind of distributed sort of infrastructure is much more resilient in the face of weather events. The total opportunity here is 
uh, in total. So everything, buildings, energy is about is estimated to be about a 750 billion euro build back. As you said, Tom, probably the largest reconstruction since the Second World War, right? It's a massive, it's seven times uh, the Europe, the GDP of Europe, right? So it, it's a, and this is to 2032 estimated to be, but that number will keep going up as more of the infrastructure is destroyed. I've seen that just the building part of this built form is somewhere between 150 to 250 billion euros. And that's the ability to go in and not just don't create more resilient energy systems, but it's also to create better insulated buildings. It's also to reimagine communities and to actually return some of the cities to nature. So that's also very important because the more that you restore nature in these areas, the more, again, resilient cities become to climate change, particularly as temperatures rise, because green canopies, for instance, will reduce as much as three to four degrees Celsius the temperatures in cities if they're well distributed throughout sort of those landscapes. But I think it's just like some of the things that I've been looking, reading and seeing, because I've got a very close friend of mine who actually uh, lives in, in Kiev and uh, is trying right now to be a very important part of that the rebuild of that energy infrastructure and by playing a very important role by bringing batteries into that country to actually repair the communication systems as communication systems get taken out they're actually able to come with mobile a mobile battery installation and reap and power up that communication that part of the communication network until the infrastructure the energy infrastructure is restored and if you talk to him, Max, talk to Max about the future, and this is a 28-year-old, I think, 27, 8-year-old, very smart young man. He believes that the future of his country is going to be extremely bright because of this ability to actually rebuild the energy infrastructure, uh, a lot of the cities. And I think the, one of the initiatives that the EU is has created is something called the Phoenix Initiative. They actually just finished having a set of meetings last week in in one of the neighboring countries. I think it was in, in Vilnius and was bringing all the donors together, et cetera, to put some money or package. And I think it was a, basically a 3 billion euro package at the end of this for damaged energy infrastructure and buildings. But there's also this other thing they which they've called the European Bauhaus uh, Initiative, which is and it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but it's 7 million euros. And it's there to actually train um, city councillors, mayors on how to reimagine an integrated infrastructure, energy buildings, transportation in cities. And it's basically led by a group of architects in Europe and also in the Ukraine. They're Ukraine has also committed to this. And that's a that's an outcome of terrible and it's a terrible thing to say, but it's a, it's an outcome of this tragedy to actually bring together this kind of integrative thinking from other parts of the world, in, in this case Europe, to the Ukraine to actually think about how do we given the resources that we now have, how can we be really smart about this? How can we learn from the failures of the past? How can we avoid making the mistakes that we have with our energy and infrastructure and leapfrog right to a distributed, resilient, renewably led 
infrastructure, and they've now committed to a 2030 target of 50% renewables and 50% nuclear. And to get into the EU, which is their goal, is they have to, by 2030, have at least 32% of that energy infrastructure renewable. So it's getting them also closer to a relationship that's very important to them. Richard, I think you mentioned that Ukraine has a legacy of Soviet-era factories, extensive mines, and other fossil fuel resources they've utilized. And of course, with the Soviet-era factories burned fossil fuels. Is there an opportunity that you would see to actually reimagine the economy to a sustainable economy in a way that perhaps other countries have not been able to reimagine as yet? Yeah, I think so, Tom, because I think, sadly, it's because of the level of destruction. So the opportunity is really, as I was mentioning, so they've got a lot of coal mining. A lot of that's been destroyed. Some of it's been occupied. If you're going to change your energy mix, coal, of course, is the most polluting of all these sources, fossil fuel energy sources. There's an opportunity for them to just leave that in the ground and to change the way they think about powering their plants. And I think hydrogen becomes a very interesting uh, fuel, very clean fuel that can be produced either as a green fuel or a blue fuel. So a blue hydrogen fuel is basically hydrogen that's been, so it's a reformation technology using natural gas as an input. And you've got a C and an H and you take the H off and the C becomes, then you have to, of course, sequester the C, right? You've got to capture it and sequester it. But there's that opportunity. There's green hydrogen, which is basically supplying, excuse me, energy to water and separating O and H. And that's usually done when when energy prices are low, which is typically off-peak times. But that's a very interesting fuel. There's a, there's a Canadian company called Ayrton Energy, which has actually created this really interesting technology that takes what is a high-pressure volatile gas liquefies it, puts it in a liquid matrix and makes it benign uh, and safe to transport and trucks pipelines at without having to freeze it or to put it under pressure and then extract it at the other end, remove the hydrogen and then use it in a, it's a hydrogen that is high enough quality used in a fuel cell, which is a, a way of powering, is a, is a source of, of, of energy generation. I think there's a lot of opportunity to electrify industry, there's opportunity to really look at how do we create much more resilient supply chains, so greener supply chains, using low carbon inputs. I think the opportunity here is to really reimagine the mix of, of industry. So it's probably not to produce coal, it's not to produce uh, steel uh, in these very old factories that are totally inefficient because they're not going to be competitive anyway and to say those industries are the old industries of the past we're not going to rebuild those we're going to build different industries we're going to you've seen for and, and for many years that the ukrainians are particularly skilled at at the new uh, what am i trying to say the, sort of the cyber economy the fourth industrial revolution, so IoT and AI, massive amounts of extremely well-trained uh, people that are actually used to, geez, you're going to have to cut this. So 
that IoT fourth industrial revolution economy, the, those resources in the Ukraine have been used to outsource AI related services and programming services. And they've got a really great young group of people that are actually developing those kinds of industries. They've got a very large uh, agriculture industry. And this is very interesting to understand. 80% of all of the agricultural workers uh, that are employed in this sector work on small farms. So again, there's an opportunity to decentralize the farming, to do more regenerative farming, which has been proven to provide much, much better yields than large monocrop industrial farming. So there's also a, 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 an opportunity there to say, let's reimagine the agriculture industry, which is a super important part uh, of their economy and get out of all the heavy industry. Go be, be more focused on the learning economy, on you know, cybersecurity, on AI, on the things that are going to be the industries of the future and just get rid of all of this old, really dirty old industries. Richard, I don't want to sound pejorative or negative in this next series of questions, but it strikes me in listening to you, particularly on the word resilience, that by reimagining your economy in a sustainable format, you actually might make your country more defensible if you're attacked again because you're so decentralized. And like I said, I don't want to draw up a militarization from this, but it struck me in listening to you that might actually be a armed forces defensive positive. If am I completely off the reservation here? No, Tom, you're absolutely right, and it is one of the reasons. Uh, it, it is absolutely important because as you decentralize, as you distribute resources, if you take out resources because of a conflict, obviously it's not taking out networks. It's taking out small communities or small areas that are being used to, to or being serviced, sorry, by that in energy infrastructure, that communication infrastructure, that transportation infrastructure. No, it's there also. And as they, what's very important to the Ukrainians, of course, is to wean themselves completely off of Soviet or Soviet, sorry, Russian energy, right? That's extremely important. Sorry for the gaff there, but it's extremely important. And so, just joking, this, right? So this decentralization absolutely plays into that, but it also plays into climate resiliency, right? And that's so it's got two pieces to it. It, and I think if you think about climate change and the effects of climate change, national security is one of the issues that's very important around climate, right? Hillary Clinton said that I think it was one of the one of the more sort of riveting comments that she made, which was she said climate is much more than climate. It has to do with national security, with our resiliency as from an energy infrastructure, and a whole bunch of other things, right? Biodiversity, etc. But national security is a very important part of being much more distributed. You absolutely framed that perfectly. It is national security. And at least in the United States, the Biden administration has elevated several initiatives that previously were not considered national security issues to that level. And climate change and sustainability is directly a part of these interconnected national security issues, certainly corruption, certainly uh, sanctions, certainly uh, 
sustainability and and surprising, perhaps not surprising to you, U.S. military is on the forefront of that because yep. they see energy as a key issue for them to be an effective arm, armed deterrent and armed forces. In my mind, I, it, it all ties together. Yeah, and I was just sorry to interrupt you, Tom, but I also think if you look at what the the conflicts of the future are going to be, and this is very much something that the U.S. And, and Canada and Europe and others are preparing for, is it's not going to be fought with guns and bullets and weapons. It's going to be fought over the Internet. It's going to be cyber-related uh, terrorism, right? And we're starting to see cyber terrorism be manifested in the U.S. All and we've seen several cyber attacks on U.S. infrastructure, and I think there's probably many that we don't know about. And so I think for for the Ukrainians, which seem to have developed a an affinity around educating or putting an emphasis on educating their younger generations on these technologies, and for them to become adept and skilled at providing those services either as an outsourced service or as a, a business to global customers, to me, just makes total sense. But yeah, the conflict, the landscape of military conflict is going to move farther and farther, I think, away from the sort of traditional guns and cannons that we see today to much more cyber-related attacks. Richard, I had a colleague, I did a series on how business changed forever after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I had a colleague observe that we are now in uh, permanent non-kinetic warfare, exactly what you said, permanent cyber warfare. So I think you're uh, absolutely spot on. So Richard, we've talked about agriculture. We've talked about housing, talked about energy. Could we maybe focus specifically on leadership Mm. and how you touched on it throughout, but I wanted to maybe have a little Q&A on how the Ukraines can really change leadership in sustainability by taking on some of these initiatives and how Ukraine might even be a laboratory for us to experiment around sustain, really reimagining sustainability going forward. Could you say, have a few thoughts on that? Yeah, sure, Tom. I, I think, I think that's, um, I think that's, at a very high level, what the opportunity is here. I was reading recently, they have, Ukraine has a wonderful young woman who is a member of the European Parliament. And she has talked a lot about this. She calls it the new epoch of cities. I think it's really interesting to think about it that way. So what do cities need to look like to actually be resilient, adaptive, and productive in a world where we've got very unpredictable weather, very unpredictable geopolitical stability, which we see now today, and war in Europe. I never thought I would see that in my lifetime. I think the real opportunity here is to reimagine cities. What is a green, resilient, productive, and prosperous uh, city look like for communities. And so they have already, the Ukrainians, sorry, have already started to look at how can we return part of the cities that we had built before to nature? So how can we create more green space around the, the cities? How do we create a vision for the integration of community prosperity, opportunity, 
energy resiliency, transportation, all these things. So they will become, I think, an incredible laboratory. That's a good word, Tom, for what the what cities could look like in the future, because they are going to, in a lot of cases, start from scratch. And it'll be very important how they manage the legacy of these older infrastructures and whether they re- they can recover some of those, whether those are materials and we can use them in a circular sort of me- methodology so they can be, as I said earlier, the rubble from buildings can be used as filler in new concrete. Are there other opportunities to actually repurpose some of the the infrastructure that they have? So that's also a really interesting laboratory because you have this ability to reimagine start from scratch and you have this other ability to reimagine transition so how do i transition from an older sort of very polluting kind of economy into one that is a low carbon economy how can i reimagine that infrastructure how do i reimagine that transition How do I repurpose some of those assets? How do I eliminate as much as possible stranding some of those assets? And how do I reimagine rebuilding that part of the economy in a just manner that actually provides prosperity to people so that they don't lose their jobs and that they actually have meaningful livelihoods going forward? So... There's all of that you could put into this, and that's why I think this is such an exciting, really exciting opportunity. And I think that you talked about leadership. One of the things that they're going to have to overcome, and I hate to say this, I I admire deeply Zelensky. I I think he's an amazing guy, personally. I, I admire him deeply as a human being and what he's trying to do. He's a real leader in my opinion but there's a corruption legacy there that is very significant and they seem to be doing a lot better they certainly were at the bottom of the table before the war the war has actually helped them improve some of that actually quite significantly but they've got a long way to go and that'll be a pretty important thing for them also to enter the eu so the leadership that zelensky delivers at the very top and his ability to inspire action that is not corrupt, if you like, throughout that that country and the ecosystems that they're going to have to rebuild is going to be super important. First of all, never apologize for talking about corruption. Uh, and always remember that the Compliance Podcast Network is dedicated yeah. to fighting corruption. And there are a lot of people in my space that are working very hard directly on that all the way from academicians at Harvard to boots on the ground people. So that is a critique that is absolutely valid and that uh, is something that we have to go into eyes wide open uh, because if it turns out that corruption is as endemic going forward, first of all, these initiatives will not happen. But more importantly, the funding mechanisms from the United Nations, from the Mm. IMF, from the United States, from Western Europe, you name the place, they will not pay to have the money stolen. No, you're absolutely spot on, and it's something we have to uh, attack head-on, literally. So that's an important part, and as the Biden administration has told us since 2021, corruption is a national security issue for the yep. United States, so we view that very seriously here. Richard, we are probably nearing the end of our time, but are there any topics around 
sustainability in the Ukraine rebuild that we haven't touched on you'd like to visit about for a few moments? I actually think I'm good. I think, Tom, I think the reality is there. I'll end by saying this because I found this to be really striking. When the war started, uh, there was a huge run on diesel generators. So you already have this terrible air quality that exists from Soviet area industrial production, coal mines, the energy mix and everything else. And everyone started to get, in fact, a lot of the donor countries supplied these diesel generators. And it was very interesting. It was this older woman that was in a village and she was remarking on the fact that the air quality since the start of the world is even worse because you've got the fumes and the emissions from these diesel generators, which burn terribly dirty fuel in a lot of cases. And instead of the village now is the air is not breathable. She's, the word she said is it's impossible to breathe in the village. But it's interesting to see now that you're starting to see this complete transition towards, again, rooftop solar. There's I've seen photos of these like foldable solar panels on balconies of people's flats and in apartment buildings. So there's recognition that this old world that they have suffered with through generations and generations is starting to change. And a little thing like the move away from diesel generators to solar panels, just because of the quality of the the air that they breathe, is an interesting kind of anecdote to this transition that's starting to happen. Richard, unfortunately, now we are at the end of our time, but I hope our listeners will plan to join us again. Thank you again. I look forward to continuing this conversation. Likewise, Tom. Thank you. This is Tom Fox. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sustainability, the business opportunity of the 21st century. I've linked to information on Richard's contact information in the show notes. So if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to him directly. Also, if you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever great podcasts are listened to. Sustainability, the business opportunity of the 21st century, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.